this year they may see 3,000 patients. They think they now have 3,000 enemies. Now there are people who will not be able to recover from this and say, I, I've hated being a doctor for a long time. I don't want to be here anymore. And for them, the answer probably is to get out. But if this is the thing that you have always wanted to do with your life, then litigation should not be the thing that drives you out of it. Hey, Rick Bucata here. I'm with Greg Henry. Greg's in Ann Arbor. I'm in Los Angeles. This is the October 2019 issue of Risk Management Monthly coming to you. We have a guest this uh, month, Gita Pensa. Gita's uh, recording from uh, Rhode Island, where she lives, and uh, she's on the faculty at Brown. But the reason that Gita's with us is because she has a fascinating story uh, that began when she was a community doctor. Gita, welcome, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. Um, yeah, I was a community doctor for um, for 13 years before I went into academics um, five years ago in 2014. And uh, my backstory has a lot to do with why I wound up going back to academics. I was sort of looking for something to bring me back um, into liking medicine again after I spent a number of years in litigation. And so I was first named in a lawsuit five years out. Um, I was working nights in a community institution and I you know, was really blindsided and I wound up being a defendant in a really prolonged lawsuit that lasted 12 years and uh, two jury trials. And I was the sole defendant, you know, the first go around, they were asking for $28 million. And I had never been taught thing one about what happened once you got served. Um, you know, we talked a lot about risk management and charting and things like that, but I had never been taught you know, even where to start, who was the first phone call? I had no idea. And I was completely, um, you know, really, I would say fairly destroyed, uh, by the process, um, in the first few years. Um, I won at trial in 2011. Um, and then there was an appeal and the appeal worked its way successfully through the courts. And then the verdict was overturned in 2015. And, Somewhere in those years, I decided that I needed to figure out how to cope with this better and um, made it my mission to learn about it. And I, you know, I read books and I, you know, books about coping, books about litigation. And um, I tried to change how I viewed this and and how I was coping with it. And it um, was this almost social experiment with an N of one where I, you know, trial A versus trial B and things went much better for me the second time around for me personally. Um, and I made a lot of changes in there. And one of them was sort of looking for ways to go back um, to liking medicine again. And that was when I started doing academics again and teaching. And when I came back to academics, my role became, um, my niche really became digital education. And among one of the things I learned to do was podcast. And somewhere towards the end of this whole litigation ordeal, I made the decision that when I was finally done, I was going to do what I could in the capacities that I had to educate people about this and particularly about litigation stress and, um, you know, this sort of isolation and stigma and shame that go along with it that really are, I feel, unnecessary. And so now I am the host of this podcast called Doctors and Litigation, The L Word. And that is how I met you. You know, I listened to the uh, podcast. It is very professionally done. Greg, it makes us look like, you know, we're, we're pikers here for crying out loud. 
Well, we're old pikers too, which is even worse. But uh, you know, she's you, you know, I can't believe that she was uh, working at a community hospital for 13 years because I'm looking her at the screen and I said, "Are you 12?" I mean, have, have you actually oh, finished geez. medical school? Here, here we Jesus, go. Here we go. She's, she's Are you chopped. kidding? I love that. I'm at an age now where, um, you know, when people say, I think you're too young to be a doctor, I thank them. Yes, you know, exactly. I used to be offended, but now I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> yep, exactly. Well, in uh, any no, case, I, could I tell you, what is the URL that you're uh, for your podcast or how do we get to it? So there's a few ways. Um, if you use iTunes, you just search for doctors and litigation, the L word, and you'll find it. Same with Spotify, or you can search by my name, Gita Pensa. And it's also on Podbean, so you can get it at, um, I think it's lword.podbean.com. Um, but if you search for it um, by that name, by doctors and litigation, the L word, then you'll find it. And um, and the reason that I call it the L word um, is probably obvious at this point. I just feel like doctors have a really hard time talking about litigation in anything but the abstract sense. Um, people have a lot of difficulty telling their stories or talking amongst each other about what's happening to them when they're in it. And, and that's why I call it that. I uh, did my first case, uh, Gita, in uh, 1976. I was an expert, so you can do the math on that. But let me tell you that everything you went through, everybody goes through. Uh, we haven't had a person on this show, or I haven't worked with anybody who hasn't admitted to a little shame. Uh, people would will admit to anything except the fact that they were sued. And as I often say, if if you call me, Greg, you know, you're a bad father and a bad husband. I'll, I'll agree with you. But don't ever call me a bad doctor because now now you're in trouble. Now I'm going to come after you. And the problem with with all of us is it's so central to who we are as people. You know, the the MD after your name and the work you do. You don't want anybody screwing with that. That makes it uh, a frightening experience. And so let me just reassure you, having done 2,000 cases, you are exactly like everybody else. And I love the comment, you didn't know what to do when you got sued. I had a guy in my own group who, when the letter came, and of course, they always come registered mail. Henry's rule is nothing good comes registered mail. Uh, and the first thing he did was he shoved it in a drawer Oh no! and he didn't let us know about it. And of course, if you don't answer a summons and complaint within the first 60 days, they, they file a motion as judgment against you. Yeah. Default we, judgment. Default. We went, we spent six months uh, telling him, no, they don't get a million dollars of our, of our insurance money. Uh, and we, we tried to explain what happened. He had, go, he had to go in front of the judge mm -hmm. and explain that he was afraid he was this, he's that. He didn't know whether he'd get fired. Uh, and after that, we realized there was another thing missing from the orientation manual for the job. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, but that's really the whole point of the, the podcast. And so what I did was 
I knew that I was going to be doing this. Um, and so six months before the second trial, I started collecting interviews with doctors. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's important, you know, when you say that, you know, everybody that you talk to has these emotions. The problem is n- nobody else knows that um, until they get in there and they experience it themselves. And so what I've done is collect these interviews with physicians who have been through it and as well as psychologists and, and attorneys and assemble them into these these podcasts that I um, thank you, Rick, I, that I hope are, are compelling to listen to. Um, but I think that there's value in being open about the emotions of the process, letting it be common knowledge that this is super common and the emotional difficulty, the litigation stress that go along with it are normal expected reactions to the process and how to know if you're at risk for something worse. Because what we know, as I'm sure you know, is that um, people make themselves really ill over this process. People, you know, start drinking, they ruin their relationships, they um, even, you know, contemplate suicide or die by suicide. And, and, And I just feel very strongly that we need to somehow change the culture in medicine around this so that it becomes less less stigmatized. Over the years, I had three doctors with our group who committed suicide. Mm-hmm. And, and whether it's directly a direct correlation, all three were under suit at the time that it happened. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't have other psychological problems. Right. But I'll tell you what I started to do, and I did this for the entire group for a while, is when anybody got sued, I invited them into my office and their significant other. Oh, awesome. <laughs> and had discussions. And I would say it was usually at that time, mostly men who were being sued. I talked to their wives and said, they're not going to be right they're going to do this and that. They're going to they're going to be emotional. They're going to kick the dog. They're going to not be happy. And funny, they all looked at me and said, "That's exactly right." Mm-hmm. She and they'd frequently say, "I think I'm being tried just exactly. like he's being tried." Exactly. And, and they lived through it together and I would on some of them we had three or four meetings here in the office just to keep up with how they were doing. But in general, their golf scores got worse. Uh, sex with their spouse became non-existent. And they, and they became angry at the fact that they had to see patients. And the patients then became the enemy. You know, yes. it was only one person who sued them. But now this year they may gonna they may see three thousand patients in, in a department. They think they now have three thousand enemies, and it's very difficult uh, to treat that illness. I promise you. So that's why I feel like if we can somehow you know normalize the emotions that go with this, if there is this open and honest conversation about what it means to be a physician who is accused. Um, and the fact that it's often not even, you know, there there was no negligence or there was no malpractice in a lot of these cases. But if we can somehow normalize the emotions that go along with them, um, I think that 
it would go a long way to actually mitigating the emotional response. And so, for example, I'm, I'm going to do a podcast. I actually have an interview with one of the psychologists about um, the effect of litigation on relationships. And there are things that nobody thinks about when they get into this, like everything that you just said is completely true and it's going on for years. So imagine the toll that takes on a, on a, a couple, on a family, on kids, when you have this, you know, 800 pound gorilla in the house every single day that this physician is trying to manage um, without outside help or without any context or without understanding why it is that they can't manage those emotions. Um, there's just, I think, so much to unpack here. And all of us, um, you know, I call them silos of suffering. You know, we're all doing this on our own. And it sounds like you are actually an exceptional director if you're calling people into their office and talking about this, especially more than once. And the insight that you have into it in, in terms of including their spouses, that's, I feel like it's off the charts from having talked to so many people who have been listen, through this. Listen, Gita, I knew what they were going through better than they knew what they were going through. And they they <laughs> and their true. spouse were all nodding their heads. And and I pretty much said, here's the phone number, pick up the phone. When you're feeling low, when you're feeling bad, we'll talk about this. Because, it, you know, at least if, if you're having a pregnancy, we know in nine months, we know when it's going to end. Right. In a lawsuit, you don't know when the suffering is going to end. And uh, I've seen it go on, you know, five years is common in the state of Michigan. But then it goes to uh, higher courts. It goes to the Court of Appeals. It goes to this court and that court. I've, I've testified in cases where it was 13 years after the initial incident. Mm -hmm. And I'm going back to give more testimony. The doctor was retired by then. But the case yeah. was still going on. Patients, they're dead. The case lives on forever. I, and I, it's funny. I just had no idea that that was possible. So I never even thought about the fact of an, an, the possibility of an appeal. I never even, I hadn't really thought about it. And so then when it happened, I was completely blindsided. And so, yeah, it just turned into such a long thing. Well, Gita, you, you have to know that we're all curious about your case. You, you, you have to acknowledge it's not the typical case. I mean, most of them don't no. go, go this long or get tried twice. So no. give us a little hint about what the, and it's a very complex case, actually. It is. It um, is. You so, and I chatted about this before. Yeah. If you could uh, try to distill this down, because I don't know enough neuroanatomy to, you know, deal with this. <laughs> so, and I have not gone through this on the podcast yet. I'm trying to decide how I'm going to handle it. Um, now that you've listened to a few, you see how I structure them. And so I'm, I'm thinking about how to, how to do this in the best way, but I am going to give you sort of the, the cliff notes version. Um, so I saw a young woman, um, who came in in the middle of the night complaining of severe right eye pain, photophobia, blurred vision in that one eye. She had 2,200 vision in the right eye and normal vision in the left and pretty intense pain. Um, she'd gotten up in the middle of the night, she walked to the bathroom and then on the way back, she started having this pain. So when she came in, she looked very, very uncomfortable. I saw her within, you know, 10 minutes of her getting there. And uh, interestingly, I actually remembered a lot about this case um, when 
I got served and when the whole thing started because I had puzzled over it a lot that night. I had spent a lot of time thinking about it. Yeah, funny when you've been sued, now all of a sudden you concentrate on the details of that case. <laughs> I promise you. Oh yeah, you'll never forget. But a lot of times people get named and they have no idea what what case they're even talking about. But I actually had a pretty good independent memory of this whole thing because it was very bizarre. Um, so long story short, she had had uh, a cervical discectomy um, the week before that and had been recovering very well at home. She had no neck pain. Everything was fine. She was walking normally, talking normally. Um, and I wound up, you know, on her exam, she had a quiet eye, but she had monocular blurred vision and photophobia and eye pain. And, you know, by all rights, that should be an eye problem. Um, she didn't have visual loss. It was legit like blurred vision. And I wound up doing a CAT scan just because I was like, you know what, this is a weird headache. I, I Let me just make sure that this is okay. And the CAT scan was normal. And by the time she was back from scan, I had medicated her for pain. And, and actually, she was very anxious. I gave her something for anxiety as well. And she was starting to feel much better. And I was still like, gosh, you know, I did her, her tonometry and that was normal. And I just, you know, I was really sort of like, what is this? I can't see anything. And I, I couldn't really do a great fundoscopic exam because of her photophobia and anxiety. And I wasn't going to dilate her. And so it was just, you know, I was left with like, maybe this is optic neuritis. Maybe this is just, I'm just seeing something weird. So I called, I woke up an ophthalmologist and I um, talked to her about it and I knew her well. Um, that's the nice thing in the communities, you know your docs. So I knew her well, she's excellent. And we talked through everything together and talked about the scan and she's like, yeah, this sounds like it's her eye, but if she's getting better, just tell her to come to my office at nine in the morning. So um, I discharged her around six and she was supposed to see the ophthalmologist at nine. Uh, but she never made it there because... Um, about an hour later, she awoke with uh, symptoms of a massive cerebellar stroke. So then she was taken to a tertiary care center. I didn't see her back again. And when she arrived at the tertiary care center, they repeated her head CT. And now she had a very clear cerebellar infarct. And when she was in my hospital, she had been like the nurses had documented her pacing. She was impatient to go home. She was completely neurologically intact. Um, but now she was very clearly not. Um, and she had, you know, all the hallmark signs of a terrible cerebellar stroke. And she wound up, um, she was admitted there to the ICU. And this was back in 2006. Um, so we weren't really doing CT angiograms routinely for um, what she ultimately wound up having, um, which was a vertebral artery dissection. Um, they wound up doing an MRI later in the day um, of her head and neck and determined that she had a dissection. And they were heparinizing people in those days. And so they wound up heparinizing her at that time. And then she actually had, um, you know, a reasonably um, okay course. She was discharged after a few weeks um, and then went home to, to sue me. Now, she had been an engineer. Um, and so the economic damages coupled with this young woman who had, you know, she hadn't had kids yet. You know, there, this was a really a high-value case. Um, and... What they alleged was that somehow, you know, obviously I, I should have seen it coming or been able to diagnose vertebral artery dissection off of the symptoms of monocular pain and photophobia and blurred vision. Um, and I still can't make that work. Um, the first trial really hinged on their arguing that I should have ordered an MRI, knowing that she had had the surgical procedure in the relatively recent past and that um, maybe clinically I could have been um, suspicious of a dissection. I could have thought maybe 
because rarely carotid artery dissection presents with facial pain, not necessarily blurred vision or photophobia, but, you know, maybe facial pain should have made me think about carotid artery dissection and I could have ordered an MRI and stumbled into the diagnosis of vertebral artery dissection. Um, but that was, that was the whole focus was, you know, I should have ordered the MRI. But in fact, we did not have MRI in house at this community hospital. And, uh, there is no way I would have gotten the tech in time, um, if there had been an indication, uh, there's no way I would have gotten the tech in time from home and to do the MRI and to get it read in any amount of time that would have made it and, actionable. And let me just guess here. They had an expert who says he diagnoses this all the time. Of course. And if, and if you'd only done X or Y, they'd be normal. None of which is true in a vertebral dissection. How close am I, Dina? Oh, you are so close. And actually, the second trial was um, so the first we can talk about, you know, experts in any of these um, trials. Um, oh, gosh, don't get me started. Anyway, the, the second trial, um, they had changed their argument um, dramatically. The second trial, and they're really not supposed to be able to do this, but they changed their whole um, theory about why I was negligent. Um, and the second trial came uh, became more about aspirin. Um, and the fact that now that vertebral artery dissection is treated with aspirin, if I had only recognized this as a TIA and given her an aspirin, that none of this would have happened. So they had a neurosurgeon who testified that, you know, 99.99999% of stroke can be um, uh, aborted if you just give someone an aspirin. And he had and, data to support that. Is oh, that right? God. Yeah, he had his his expertise um, to support that to the point where, can I tell you a funny story? I'm going to, no, it's not really funny, but I'm going to tell you this quick story. So at some point, since aspirin was the crux of the, the whole case, um, and of course, in any of these cases, everyone goes pouring through all the pages of, of nursing notes and medications, you know, given and times and all this stuff. Um, the crux of the argument was I should have given her an aspirin, but she never actually got an aspirin at the tertiary care center. And everybody knew that. And so when this neurosurgeon was on the stand and arguing that I should have given her an aspirin, and, you know, of course, we bring up the point that she never got an aspirin. You know, she was heparinized later in the day. He refers to this neurology resident note. And um, the neurology resident wrote in their note, aspirin times one now but she never got it. So clearly he had discussed it with their attending and they decided not to do it, but there's no medication record of aspirin administration. So when my lawyer brought this up with him, he said, that's because he probably just gave it to her on the spot because neurologists and neurosurgeons walk around with aspirin in their pockets because it's so critical that people get aspirin as soon as they show signs of a stroke that we just kind of give it to them on the spot. No, they walk around actually with pipes in their pockets and it matches the leather patches on their sport coats. But no, they do not walk around with aspirin in their pockets. So then when my attorney very smartly, and I will say that actually it was after a lunch break and I had lunch with one of my nurses who was the one that pointed out, didn't that woman have dysphagia when she came in and he's going to give her an aspirin out of his pocket? I was like, oh my God, you are a genius. So I give that to my attorney. And then after lunch, he says, now let's go back to this aspirin in the pocket thing. Like this woman can't swallow. It's already been documented. She can't swallow. You're going to take an aspirin. Someone's going to take an aspirin out of their pocket and just put it in her mouth. And he said, yeah, that's what we do as a swallowing test. We do that fairly routinely. So, I mean, this was the level of just, I, you know, and, and 
the heart one of the hardest things that you don't know about until you're in it is that when you're on trial, you have to sit there. My attorney's instructions were to look politely interested at all times. So you have to sit there and listen to this. Can I swear? You can swear. Can I swear on this? And like you have to listen to this and act professional and not jump up and say, like, you are the biggest liar on the face of the planet. This is baloney. I just, I would use stronger words, but I, it is, it is so hard to sit and listen to this like day after day, these so-called experts who have, in my opinion, completely sold their souls, um, just, you know, raking in thousands of dollars and saying stuff that is just, oh, it just makes you want to scream and you're not allowed to scream. Let me just say that you're my kind of person. (laughs) And, um, (laughs) As the expert, I was occasionally allowed to trample over these people and, or take them to the board at ASAP and do things like that and get them censured. Uh, but there are all kind. you remember, every trial is its own little reality. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily refer to the outside world or, or science. And uh, if you think they're trying science, good luck. That's not what's being tried in a courtroom, I promise you. Absolutely, I agree, 100%. Well, uh, wasn't one of the issues regarding the uh, second trial the fact that there was a Canadian who was the expert witness and we're going to talk about the standard of care? Yes, so that was really the, that was the crux of the appeal. Um, so the um, there was one emergency physician who testified me against the first trial and I will not name him. Um, but I mean, it's public record, but I, I don't see the need to name him, but, um, but he was Canadian. He was Canadian and practiced at an academic center and, and he was supposed to be opining on the standard of care in a community emergency department in the United States. And interestingly, he, you know, among his credentials that he relied upon was, um, his, position in, in ASAP. Um, and I think he'd reviewed things for them. And I don't know if he was, I don't think he was on the board, but he was a a reviewer at some point and had some other roles. Um, but there also is, and many people are unaware of this, uh, ASAP has a, um, a, a set of ethical standards for medical experts. And he was asked among other things on the stand, um, you know, in his ASAP capacity, did you know that, you know, basically number <laughs> rule number one is that you are supposed to be board certified to practice emergency medicine in the United States if you were going to testify against a United States physician. And he just said he was unaware. He was unaware of that. Um, and so the there were two main issues with this expert witness. Um, one was that the they felt the plaintiffs felt that my attorney had biased um, the jury against him in this continual hammering of the you are from another country thing. And also, um, and this became this became contentious as well. He had a website where he basically sold his services um, and you know, I will testify in family practice. So be going like you just basically was, you know, his, his, his advertisement for his expert witness services. 
And my attorney had taken a screenshot of that. And during his cross, when he was asking him about, you know, his background and everything like that, he said, and he put up a, the screenshot and said, is this your website? And he acknowledged that it was, and it, it did make him look kind of skeevy, frankly. Um, but that screenshot had not actually been entered um, ahead of time as an exhibit for the plaintiffs to review. And um, those two things coupled together and the fact that the jury returned a verdict very quickly um, in under 30 minutes in my favor. Um, they, yeah, well, so then the whole fear is that the jury made the verdict based on bias instead of a, a measured review of the evidence. And the jury form, I also didn't know this, um, the language on the jury form varies from trial to trial, and um, they argue over what should be in the verbiage. And um, my lawyer had insisted on the phrasing um, of, you know, the standard of, of a physician practicing in the United States. And all those things together made them argue that there had been bias against um, against that expert. And I thought that was the most ridiculous thing I had ever heard. I was not worried about it. Um, and yet it went through like every stage of the courts um, in Rhode Island. And then in 2015, they upended the whole verdict. And for the whole for that thing, um, I had to go to trial all over again. And so they could have a second crack with a whole new whole new argument, whole new set of um, allegations. It was kind of nuts. And a new expert, too. I'm oh, sure. a new expert. New expert, yeah. yes. Yeah, yes. you have to be. Yes. Gina, what do you think of, uh, well, the logical consequences of your experience, and I think the experience of the physicians who have gone through this process, is that they become, well, they don't, they don't like medicine much anymore. And uh, they feel very defensive when they practice medicine. Do you think that that is a generalization that is true, or are there, are there a lot of people who really able, are able to escape that? So, you know, I think it's interesting that there are definitely a lot of people who there are people that leave medicine over it. There are people that remain burned out over it. Um, I think most people that struggle with the emotions of it have a little bit of a period of time, at least, where they you know, second guess their choices and, 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 you know, maybe going to work is difficult. Um, but there are people and I've definitely found them through the interviews that I've done, um, that are really role models of how to be resilient in this process. And this is again, why I think that we should be talking about this openly, um, because it's really interesting to hear how they thought about things and what they did to, to get better. Um, and for me, as I mentioned before, I went back to, to academics and to teaching. Um, and I had a, a very different approach to how to, you know, I, I sort of reframed the events and how I thought about them and how I thought about myself as a physician. And the way that I actually found my way back to liking medicine again was to look for the love, you know, to really look for, and it really wasn't in the trauma bay. It was really in these small daily interactions of, giving comfort to patients, to, um, to helping them through something scary. Um, every time I would have a small victory, I would remind myself of what I was doing and, and, and why I was doing it. I actually, um, and I, when I talk about this, I, I mentioned, I cut out an, an essay that, um, someone had written and it was one of the, in one of the free, uh, emergency medicine newsletters had written an essay about, 
um, the spiritual satisfaction of, of caring for um, sort of forgotten populations of the homeless and the chronic alcoholics. And I cut that out and I carried it around with me for a while as like, I don't know, a talisman, something to remind me of, of the importance of what I did. And um, I have to say that that worked. Um, and it made me a better doctor overall, I think. It's made me, um, I've come to peace with a lot of, of, lot of what I've a lot of what transpired, a lot of what transpired. And um, I'm different. I'm, I'm, I'm a different physician than I was. And the things that I really, I mean, I sure I love, you know, I love a great save, but um, there's more to what we do than that. And as much as I would never want to go through this process again, it has completely changed my perspective on medicine um, and probably in what I think is a good way. And so Again, the more that we talk to people who have been through this process and found um, a way out, have found a way to make peace with it, have found found a way to, you know, for some of these physicians, they really love telling their story because the fact that something helpful could come out of it to them is really meaningful. Um, I think that those are all ways forward. There are ways forward, but we need people to demonstrate that. You know, by the way, uh, go ahead. Um, one thing, it's really interesting that you bring it up because. Uh, you're familiar with this paper that was done by Justin Carlson where he looked at uh, the behavior of a bunch of sued doctors. And um, there was a subset of the doctors who well, the issue was uh, failure to make a diagnosis or delayed diagnosis or something related to the diagnosis. And when he looked at the behavior of those physicians, they were not ordering much more than they ordered before uh, in in, in terms of their defensive behavior. But what immediately was uh, acknowledged was that they were her, their patient satisfaction scores went up immediately. And I think what mm -hmm. that says is, is that um, I, I'm going to be, um, I have a different sense of this now. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to look at patients in a different way and I'm going to be, be nice to them and I'm going to treat them as if I would like to be treated myself or my family. And in the process of doing that, they became better doctors, I think, uh, because they uh, focused on not just the clinical aspects of what they were doing, but the um, emotional aspects. And, the, and that was rewarded by the patients saying, I like this doctor now. And so it, it was almost immediate in terms of what the patients thought of these doctors who had made errors largely related to um, diagnosis. By the and way, was... what, what you found, uh, Gita, is a way of dealing within yourself with how you felt. Now, everybody finds their own way of dealing with the, the post-traumatic event. I got six, eight, ten doctors who went to law school mm -hmm. because they thought they were going to now know better than a regular lawyer how to help these people. Mm -hmm. I have people who have gone into other professions, helping kinds of, of professions, and again, they felt uh, better. when it, It's like they went through their catharsis yeah. And uh, all of a sudden, they found something which would make give them a raison d'etre, a reason to be alive and function each day. Yes. I mean, I'm not sure how many people listen to your po podcast, but the fact that you've put it out there is therapeutic to you. 
If, if, if to no one else, uh, <laughs> you feel better about doing it. It's, it it's yeah, it's like practicing my instrument, you know, in a, in a room in my house. Uh, nobody else gets to enjoy it, but it, it helps me. I feel better when right. I do that sort of thing. And it's, uh, it's, it's not uncommon. And we've had plenty of leaders in ASAP. Uh, in fact, two women, I not use their names, but they went to law school, particularly because they went through that experience and they now want to fight for the good fight and provide some sort of psychological backup for people. And that's um, so important. I feel like, you know, so when you're suffering through this, if you don't know that there are people who deal well with this and then even use it as a catalyst to make their life more what they feel like it was meant to be. If you don't know that, then you can succumb to, you know, this malpractice stress syndrome. You can get mired in ruining your career and your relationships and, and you know, and, and substance abuse and all that other sort of stuff. Um, but there are definitely these people, like the more we know their stories and the more um, open we are about how they how they took advantage of this situation in a way and made it work for them and for their life. Um, it becomes almost a, you know, um, I don't know, a, a transformative experience in a good way. And so as awful as it is, there are these people out there who have made use of the experience and leveraged it to change their life in a positive way somehow. And yep. that those stories are really, really very important. Those role models are very important. And even back to the paper, you know, it was I was joking with someone I was corresponding with about it and saying like, oh, well, you know, maybe being sued makes you a good doctor. And everyone's worried about um, having to report that they've been sued. But maybe we should only be hiring doctors who have been sued because they're better. And imagine if we reframe the whole conversation that way. <laughs> I gave I gave a talk once to uh, basically residency directors um, at, uh, at, at one of the big meetings. And basically I said, here's what you do if you really want to help your patients out medically, legally. The first day they show up, sue them. First day <laughs> on the first patient, get a lawyer friend of yours and come up with a bunch of crap uh, it's got to be at least 10 pages long about the things you did. You know, also mm -hmm. sue their parents for having a kid that dumb to go to med school. Uh, and, and then what you do is uh, take them through the process during the three years of their residency. Uh, I also proposed, and one group actually did it, assigned the uh, residents to follow a case while they were there. And they got copies of everything. They got they got to attend, and I went with some of them to the depositions. Mm -hmm. So they got to see the questions that are going to be asked. How do you feel when this is happening? Because it's not normal and it's not natural. Uh, the two processes, law and science, do not necessarily go together well. No. Uh, and, I actually invited my residents to come to the second trial to watch me testify, and only a handful took me up on it. Um, the ones who did, I think, uh, you know, afterwards, they were saying like that that was really just they had no idea what to expect, and they, it just changed so much about what they thought about the process. But a couple of them said, interestingly, like, I just can't come 
I can't come watch it. I cannot come. Like I will literally, I'm, I'm so anxious for you that I can't even, I can't even think about doing it, which says a lot. I think at this point, I still get hired to play lawyer and sit down with uh, the lawyer and the doctor being sued. And I get to play plaintiff's attorney and ask them all the difficult questions. Mm-hmm. Universally, they don't like it or me when we're done. Mm-hmm. Universally, uh, universally, they say that was useful because yes. I know what they're going to say and how they're going to phrase it. And they phrase it in the negative and they do this and that. That's not the way we think as doctors. And they need that experience, that intense experience before they go in and get um, get grilled on the stand. And, and believe me, I've had doctors who were literally going to get off that uh, practice stand and beat me <laughs> when I asked certain questions. But you know what? If they haven't thought about those questions now, right. what are they going to do in front of 12 people picked from the voters' rolls who are yeah. going to watch them? Yeah, that emotional control is is really difficult to maintain if you're not prepared for how they're going to come at you. Exactly. You didn't, now that you've been through this process and you've talked to a lot of other people who have uh, as well, can you distill this down? Yeah, I think so, you know, in terms of staying, so there's a few layers to this. I think in terms of staying, um, staying in medicine, staying in love with what you do, I, you know, there are a lot of reasons that physicians get burned out and litigation is probably just one of them. And focusing on the things within the profession, the things that brought you into the house of medicine in the first place, I think is a really good way to start if you're, if you're staying. Now, there are people who will not be able to recover from this and say, I, you know, I, I've hated being a doctor for a long time. I don't want to be here anymore. And, you know, for them, the answer probably is to get out. But if this is the thing that you have always wanted to do with your life, then litigation should not be the thing that drives you out of it. Um, and so, so yeah, so step one, I think is sort of, you know, doing this reassessment of what it is that brings you, um, joy, if you want to use that word, but what it is that makes you love what you do and trying to focus on those things instead of, and sort of de-emphasize the negative of what's going on in litigation. The second thing that I think is important for really everybody, um, that's going through this process is, uh, to talk about it and people don't like talking about it. And so this is where I think peer support is really important. So Greg, when you're talking about having people come into your office, people need to be understood. And a lot of physicians do not want to go um, talk to a, a counselor or someone who doesn't really get what it means to be a physician who is being accused of malpractice. Like there is so much wrapped up in that that you don't have to explain to a, another physician. If you say to a doctor, like, I'm being sued, it's a big case, like automatically we know, we know what that means. We know how difficult that is. And so, um, so talking about what's happening to you with a peer is really important or, you know, a spouse, a friend, just letting people know that this is happening to you. You shouldn't be, you shouldn't be ashamed of the fact that it's happening and you should be engaging, um, with people who can support you as, as difficult as it sounds. And again, the more that we can remove the stigma from this, the easier that becomes. Um, and then for the people who are, who have been through it, um, I want them to talk to, I want them to talk to, um, 
younger physicians or physicians who haven't been sued or haven't been through the process about their experience with it, how they got through it, what sort of, you know, as Greg said, it's going to be something different for everybody, the thing that, that gets them through. But the fact that they need to be, you know, focusing on on being well through this process and how can they do that and how can they come back to it? How do you find, you know, how do you find the strength to deal with the anger, the bitterness, the, you know, being upset with the system or, or, or guilt or and grief. If, if you feel like you had some responsibility, like all of those emotions are so, they are things that need to be unpacked. Um, and so finding someone that you trust to confide in, and I know they say, don't talk about it, you know, your attorney will say that or the insurance company. What they mean is, you know, you don't need to give everyone the details of your case. But in no other circumstance do we completely traumatize a human being and then tell them you can't talk about it. Um, and this is really traumatizing for a lot of people, especially their first lawsuit, I think. And, and if they don't feel supported, it's tough. Um, so, you know, being open about the process, accepting help when you need it. Um, talking about it with other people and then focusing on the positives and ways to take care of yourself during the process are all, you know, obviously I could talk about this for days, but <laughs> those, are, those are sort of the starter nuggets, I would say. Perfect. Uh, a case, uh, a case has not been filed yet, but just to remind everyone as of uh, July 1st in the state of California, the California homeless law, applies directly to the emergency departments. And uh, in, in two, I think maybe three months ago, we reviewed the elements of that law. I have not heard, and no, no listeners have called in as to whether that no one would have had a case tried by now, but has anybody been filed against? If you know of it, uh, please let us know and we will fo follow it because this is a huge, uh, issue and the uh, all the various things which the emergency department has to do and supply to the homeless is now going to be a very big issue. We also this month got sent a paper uh, and this comes from uh, Chip Potter, uh, 10 reasons why doctors get sued. Now, I think we can all participate in this one. But it's a, somebody who I think hadn't finished uh, med school yet uh, when they wrote the paper. They're now doctor so-and-so. But the doctors get sued, this person claims, uh, for reasons which are much different than malpractice. And uh, he says, the documentation of when you knew or should have known that someone was having a certain medical condition, the time lag. That's how he summarizes it. The time lag between suspicion and moving on the correct case. Uh, because oftentimes the patient will have uh, certain symptoms that they say may have or should have prompted action before you actually took it. So to this, to this reviewer, that's a major source. Failure to communicate with the patient and the family, obviously. Here's one which I think probably we've all been guilty of, and that's the repeat visit for the same patient. That is the nurse saying, it's Fred again, and he's here with his back pain. 
So this repeat visits. Any comments on that from either of you? Oh, uh, absolutely. <laughs> That's I, I I teach that as as when they come back. You know, well, there's two there's two sides to this. One, um, I actually did a podcast for a, another entity about anchoring bias in the frequent flyer, and I tell a story about one of my sickle cell patients that I knew very very well. Um, who came in one day saying, this is my pain, this is my pain, this is my pain, it's in my pelvis, my back, my legs. Um, and long story short, then she became hypotensive um, and she almost died of her ectopic pregnancy because I did not start from the beginning and think about all the other things that it could be and I did not order a pregnancy test. And so, um, you know, I, I tell that story pretty frequently um, just about having, you don't want to reinvent the wheel every time, but, uh, you know, when something doesn't match a previous pattern, um, it is definitely time to start anew. Um, and then just anytime I, you know, I, I feel like anytime someone, maybe if they're not a regular, but if they're a bounce back, um, you know, it's the second time you've seen this person or someone who didn't come to the ED and now this is their third time there this week, like then it's time to really kind of think like, oh, maybe we should go a little deeper today because something is probably wrong. Rick, what do you think? Well, you know, I think if you're in a department that has multiple uh, clinicians, this may be a time to get somebody else involved as well. Uh, we've pointed out in the past that a new set of eyes um, brings to the case something that's, uh, that's, you know, you may be seeing the same thing over and over and over again. So I think that that would be something that uh, would be a reasonable thing to do. Yeah, let me stick one thing in, and that is, we all have anchoring bias. Mm -hmm. uh, there's always something about somebody which has blocked us from understanding it. And uh, very early on, we had a, a rule that said, if you're the next doctor on, or you're, there's a second doctor working, let the second doctor look at this patient. Have new eyes take a look at it. Because the old theory was, well, Greg, you saw this patient yesterday, so you know them. Why don't you be the one? I have just the opposite view of that. I agree with this paper. I think if you have fresh eyes, you go in and you do it, you're less biased by what you learned the day before. I don't, I shouldn't even talk to the other doc if they're there, because I should give the patient the benefit of a clean look, uh, and we all have regulars. And, and that, that can be the worst thing in the world. The worst thing you can have when you walk in is a diagnosis. Because, then, <laughs> because once a diagnosis is purported, put out there, all intelligent thought stops. <laughs> nobody, nobody wants to rethink the issue anymore. But I like that when I thought that was good. Rick, comments? You know, nobody's going to argue with that. I don't think physicians necessarily want to see your troublemakers. <laughs> you know, you can't, you couldn't figure it out the first time. And now you, you, you want to foist them off on me. Is that what it is, doctor? Um, yeah. Well, it's very interesting because uh, uh, they, they also said uh, abnormal results and findings, which people just blow off. I mean, if you've decided what a disease is, very few people get back the electrolytes 
uh, and actually check to see if the numbers don't add up or figure out correctly. And because why? Because we've already decided what they've got. So why did you order all those other tests? If you're not <laughs> going to look at it, don't order it. And, and I agree with that. Uh, if you've ordered this, that, or another thing, and it's not within the normal range, you might as well figure it out or say something about it. Because when it comes back in a legal action, uh, it's not good. Uh, another one is ab, uh, is uh, prescription errors. The number of doctors who write prescriptions, not looking at all the other prescriptions that patient is taking, and the and the interactions from these things are crazy. I mean, I say this, and I've admitted on this broadcast that I took too many NSAIDs. Uh, when I had my kidney stone impacted, uh, and then I bled down half my blood volume. I think, I think it's probably a good <laughs> idea that you look and see what some of these patients are taking, not only what they're on, but how long they've been taking it, because the side effects are real. And uh, it takes us a while to learn the side effects, there are at least 12 or 13 new drugs that all end in UMAB now, the anti-inflammatory medications which are available from everything, from nondescript pelvic pain to migraine headaches, uh, to all kinds of things. And I think, I think they're being passed out like candy mints now, and, and we're probably going to have to wait and see what's going on. Um, uh, by the way, incomplete discharge summaries or specific instructions for the patients. Most people don't understand the discharge instructions we give out and how they're time-specific and action-specific. And uh, in, in this physician's uh, review of why we got sued, that's a reason. They couldn't actually look at that piece of paper and know where they were going to be, when to be rechecked, and to know whether you're going to get to see the doctor. Now, I'm going to refer to an interesting case this month in uh, malpractice experts and verdicts, and it has to do with a lawsuit, uh, Alabama. And in this particular case, a patient came into the emergency department with a gunshot wound. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. As the ER doc, do you have a real problem here? Make sure there are big lines, you've got the x-ray going, and you get the surgeon. Because you're not going to do anything about it. And they're dying, and they need to go someplace. In this particular case... Uh, this is the estate, uh, always starts bad when it starts out, the estate of uh, Johnny uh, Sledge, deceased, versus uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Bilton. Uh, this doctor uh, was on call uh, for surgery. They tried to get a hold of him. He's at another hospital doing surgery. He's on call for this one. So what he says is, well, maybe I can get out of here in 20 minutes. He calls back in 20 minutes and says, this case is going to take longer. 
So the emergency doc then has to start searching. His partner, who was who is his partner but was not on call, basically said, "I'm not coming in." It's 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 a as you might imagine, as happens frequently in gunshot cases. This is someone who was not expertly covered with insurance, uh, and he's not coming in. This emergency doc is searching, going down the call list to find a surgeon. Now, the patient was significantly wounded, but he wasn't dead at that time. He at least deserved a shot at somebody saying, well, we've got a chance. And uh, this was the uh, largest verdict this year in the state of Alabama. And it's a $30 million decision against the hospital and the physician involved. Which physician involved? Well, it's it's. I'm glad you said that, because now there's a fight between who? The first doctor who was on call and is at another hospital doing elective surgery, and his partner, who basically said, I'm not coming for that. So that fight is still going on, but the plaintiff doesn't care where the money comes from. It's It's going to come from the hospital. Uh, because they're the ones who have an obligation to set up a system so that these things don't fall through the crack. And, you know, it's amazing the number of times we say to docs, have you ever had that happen? They say, well, yeah, but I've got surgery tomorrow. I can't come in or I don't come in to see eye cases or I don't do this or that. Have specifics. If your smaller hospital doesn't do eye, eye trauma, in this area, the only place that does eye trauma really is the University of Michigan Hospital. Um, that's th- it's not going to be done by by most smaller places. At least know that and deal with that up front. Time wasted looking for a doctor to do things uh, on time dependent disease is not a good thing to do. All right. Well, listen, uh, Gita, it was great having you with us. Uh, Hope you'll be interested in coming on again and carrying on conversation. And if you'd like to talk about all the possibilities, ways you can use this in the future in your career, I'd be happy to give you some insight from my own career on this. And Gita, good luck with your uh, ongoing uh, podcast. I think it's really well done. I think that uh, it would be great for the world to know about it because there's um there are people who out there who are hurting and who can get some relief and guidance uh from you and from the people that you interview Uh, so i think you have a lot to offer and so uh thank you for doing it and uh for us greg do you have a wine for the month uh, we are going to have two wines next month, Rick. So uh, st- stay tuned, all you wine lovers, because they're coming up shortly. Okay. Thank you both of you for having me. I'm so I'm so excited to have talked to both of you, and I just thank you for the opportunity. All right, from from Gita, from Rick, and myself. This is the October issue of Risk Management Monthly. Signing off. 